welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with my good friend, Jiki Chong, Chief Data Scientist at Acorns, a startup focused on building tools for micro-investing. Jika has extensive experience using analytics and machine learning in financial services. And for those of you in data science and big data and AI, you know that one of the early adapters of many of the technologies we uh, talk about is financial services and fintech. He also has experience building data science teams in both the U.S. and in China. And as a reminder, he will be teaching a two-day training on the applications of data science and financial services at our Artificial Intelligence Conference in Beijing this coming June. We had a great conversation spanning many topics, including the current state of data science and financial service in both the U.S. and in China. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Jika Chong, Chief Data Scientist at Acorns. Welcome to the Data Show. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to go through your work right now at Acorns and your previous work at a bunch of other startups. But before we do that, I'd like to understand how you got into data science, because I think I know your uh, your thesis advisor is Kurt Kutzer of uh, UC Berkeley, who I also know because I happen to advise one of his startups at the moment, full disclosure. But uh, I think of Kurt as more in on the hardware side of things. So uh, how exactly did you end up in uh, data science. Yeah, so I actually started my career in designing microprocessors. I was part of a design team for designing one of the first uh, multi-core and many-core processors at some microsystems. And uh, I got into data science mainly through the process of figuring out how do we want to utilize all this processing power and as people might. So this is, uh, is post-PhD? Yes, post PhD. Interesting. So then, uh, were you so you were designing these processors? You had this processing power, and you were trying to find a way to actually take advantage of what you've built. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we were actually designing these uh, many core processors back at Sun Microsystems, and this was like beginning of two thousands. And uh, we had like eight cores and eight threads per core, and with all this parallelism. Back then, it was actually hard to figure out what would be the best application for it. There were like storage applications and other kind of uh, web edge applications. But it was really until when I was in Berkeley working on my PhD, figuring out how people could use these highly parallel, highly powerful processors that the um, machine learning wave started. And we found that machine learning, hey, it was needing an endless amount of computation and they can the computation can actually be put to purposes that's valuable for business so this is uh so at this point i would imagine uh, the fashionable techniques for support vector machines and bayesian inference so this was pre-deep learning right yes well 
yes, those deep learning. Uh, and then a few years later, all the GPUs and deep, deep learning multi-layer perceptrons start becoming popular. And definitely you see the wave from NVIDIA and other places working on innovative architectures for doing deep AI. So one of the things that I found interesting in your background, which I did not know, is that you were basically uh, doing quantitative modeling for a venture fund in yes. the 2011-2012 period, which actually precedes. These days, you, you now hear a lot of VC firms who employ data scientists because they want to take advantage of data in uh, as they make investment decisions although i think a lot of a lot of it is still relational frankly <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so how did you end up in this role and was this a role that you created for yourself or were they hiring for someone for this role yeah it's interesting that you asked that back then i think quantitative finance on the east coast uh for hedge funds and high frequency trading uh, those have been pretty common for the past decade, but applying it for venture investment is a newer wave. So back then, Chris Farmer published a few blogs on how to use some quantitative techniques like the PageRank algorithms to assess uh, how good um, the investors are in the Bay Area. And much was inspired from those initial attempts. And the specific role at, this was uh, the Silver Lake Craftwork Fund started by Adam Grosser, that was trying to use all kinds of new technologies to invest in clean tech growth stage investments. And one of Adam's uh, friends reached out to me and connected us because I was working on using high-performance computing technologies for machine learning and similar kind of technologies. And they teamed up with another professor, Matthew Dixon, to work on this project. And through this project, we were actually figuring out how best to use data and machine learning techniques to validate hypotheses, investment hypotheses. And we actually found that the process of investing is very similar to uh, some Bayesian processes where um, the Bayesian, the typical Bayesian optimal classifier is a really good model for uh, how investment partnerships work in investment firms. So we actually applied that kind of underlying machine learning mechanism to uh, the process of investing. So I guess uh, this kind of probably marks the start of your uh, interest in finance, but also you've probably also familiarized yourself with the types of data that financial professionals use to make decisions. But I imagine for that role, you probably were also charged with finding other sources of signal, other sources of data, alternative data, right? Yes, absolutely. So. It was actually through that I gained a, a profound respect for the process of investing. And, you know, before that role, investing seemed like, you know, you're just placing bets on specific investments at times. But after that role, what I found was that investing as an industry is trying to take the 
society's resources and putting it in places where it can gain the highest return. And it's not just for the benefit of the investment professional, but really for the benefit of the retirement fund that and for people's hard-earned savings. So it's got a lot more societal impact. And that's sort of on the funding side. And then for the places where it is deploying the fund to, that's a place where you know the, the decision has to be taking a lot of aspects into account, like the people, right? the market opportunity, the team, and also because this was a late-stage investment, we we're taking into account the clout and the capabilities of the early investors in the deals. So yeah, in the machine learning algorithm, we had to look at a lot of alternative data sources to be able to make assessments about all those aspects. And I first met you actually at your next role, which was at Simply Hired, which was a job search engine. And O'Reilly had a partnership with Simply Hired where we had access to their job posting data and we used it and mined it to spot technology trends. And actually, I lament the fact that uh, we no longer have access to that data because <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was always a, a great data source. And then after Simply Hired, then you kind of uh, started focusing more and more on financial services and fintech. So at a high level, why are you so fascinated with fintech and financial services? Or, or should I make that distinction, actually? Is fintech you know, kind of associated with startups? Uh, is that a different world than, uh, than the traditional financial services? Well, I think, in my mind, fintech is one piece of the technology that goes into the financial services, right? The financial services, it's got the human aspect of serving people's needs in the financial domain. And the financial technology plays into that by making it more efficient, making the process more robust, and making sure that uh, the right people get the right kind of services introduced and served in that process. And in many ways, also disrupt the standard way of doing things, right? <laughs> yes, I think the disruption part is mainly because um, whenever there is a thick profit margin, technology can be introduced to reduce that profit margin and serve the customer better. So naturally, uh, financial services market traditionally has been a thick margin industry. So I see great potential for machine learning and financial technologies to disrupt. So at a high level, what are some A, opportunities, and B, very specific challenges when you start talking about fintech and financial services and the applications of data science and machine learning? Yeah, that could be a long topic, but I'll point out a few things and we can decide which one we want to dive into. So fundamentally, financial technologies can help lower the cost of serving a lot of people. and in financial services, there are really two main areas uh, that is part of its traditional business model. So there is a customer acquisition piece, and then there is a customer retention piece. So for customer acquisition, we can see that uh, new technologies can really serve it well by looking at all sorts of data sources that can help a financial service company identify who they want to target to be able to provide those services. 
So it's a great place where data science can help find the product market fit, not just at one instance, like you know, identifying who you want to target, but also in a continuous form where you can evolve a product and then continuously finding the audience that would best fit the product and continue to analyze the audience so that you can design the next generation product for it. And then once you have a specific cohort of users who you want to target, there is a need to be able to precisely convert them, which means understand what stage uh, in the customer's thought process is and understand how to form the narrative to be able to convince the user or the customer that a particular piece of technology or a particular piece of service is the current service that they need. And then it's a matter of managing that process, that pipeline, to understand that for those people who you think that are not your current customer, how do you guide them to find the, the kind of services they really need so that you know this is the typical exhaust data utilization problem where you're trying to recoup some of your customer acquisition costs at the same time as serving the customer to find the financial services that you cannot satisfy yet, but others may. So in terms of customer acquisition, uh, there are those kind of opportunities. And then quickly on the customer serving or retention side. Well, first, for a financial service that is looking to sustain for a long amount of time. So we commonly talk about building 100-year businesses, right? They have to be uh, profitable businesses. And for financial service to be profitable, there are the operating side, the quantifying risk side that requires a lot of data science. There is the looking for self-protection of the financial services entity in terms of preventing fraud. That's really important. And there is garnering the long-term trust with the customer so that they stay with you, which means having the work ethics to be able to take care of customers' data, being able to serve the customer better with all kinds of automated services that's available whenever and wherever the customer is. And it's all those opportunities where I see we can help serve the customer by having the right services presented to them and being able to serve them in the long term. So uh, we have an audience here of a lot of people. Are, it's a mixed audience, but we also do have a lot of data scientists and machine learning experts in the audience. So a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. One, uh, how much domain knowledge do I need in order to make an impact in uh, the types of problems you describe. And secondly, if I join Acorns or, or some o- other company in this space, will I be able to use the bleeding edge techniques like, I don't know, deep learning, reinforcement learning, and things like this? You know how people always want to be in a position where they can expand their skills. So, yes. So, first question the so, Ben, can you repeat the first question? Sorry, I want to get, make sure I get it right. So first question has to do with how much domain knowledge? And second question yes. is, uh, will, I, will I be using modern methods? Yes. So in terms of domain knowledge, uh, for the financial domain, 
there is quite a lot of financial domain knowledge that's required to really understand the problem and to be able to uh, produce solutions that's relevant to the field. Now, a lot of those domain knowledge can be learned on the job, and many of those domain knowledges, knowledge domains can be transferred from other industries as well. So I'll give you a few examples. So for uh, customer segmentation and for customer acquisition flows, that's actually pretty common to any kind of internet businesses. So if you have internet business, mobile business domain knowledge. Marketing and uh, media and advertising kind of roles, right? Exactly. Those are quite transferable. And on the other side, for the customer sustaining, for any kind of subscription business, relationship business, there's always the need to be able to understand the user better, to look for critical moments where you may detect signals where the customers start to churn and be able to target those customers to be able to help them stay on the service. Those are quite common and transferable. But what would be quite unique to each business is how all these components be able to contribute to the business's uh, mission and vision. So for every business, there tend to be uh, a different scenario and different uh, mission and vision. So for a lending business, for example, the mission may revolve around providing credit in a very fast pace to be able to allow a user to satisfy their immediate needs when they have a need for lending. For a wealth management service, it may be serving them really for the best interest of the long-term financial wellness so that you're more looking at the longer-term scope, time horizon, and be able to provide products and services that is may have hurdles in the short term for customer adoption, but once they adopt it, uh, would be able to serve them better uh, over decades. So follow up here. So financial services is uh, one of these highly regulated industries. And actually, one of the ways we see that in data science is uh, take one topic, right? So model explainability and model interpretability. The canonical example is usually something from financial services, right? The credit score. Um, yes. So are there other aspects of financial services that stand out? Yes. So um, for all these regulations, even something as simple as writing a check or uh, doing an ACH transfer or like bank account to bank account transfer, there are regulations governing the process for doing that. So, uh, for example, even for a simple uh, ACH transfer, there are NACHA rules for how that needs to be done. Now, from the machine learning perspective, whenever we make a decision about who to target and uh, who we do not target, even for wealth management and not for um, uh, lending, uh, which is higher, uh, more, uh, more tightly regulated, from the company perspective, we would like to understand whether we're targeting the right cohorts or not. So for many of the fast-moving companies, especially startups, where the marketing strategy changes from time to time and where the marketing materials may change and to, to capture the news waves, the cohort of users that gets acquired and captured 
may be quite different from one marketing campaign to another. So when those things happen, we need to understand whether the machine learning models are still appropriate to be applied to the new population. And in those areas, we do want to look at what are the reasons we're making the decisions, either targeting or sustaining or uh, serving our customer are still relevant or not. So in all those instances, like methodologies like Lime, the locally interpretable model agnostic explanation type of uh, algorithms uh, need to be used. So the other question I had had to do with uh, methods and whether or not uh, people who jump into this vertical will have the opportunity to use some of these cutting edge methods like deep learning and reinforcement learning. Now, I think I know the answer to this because uh, for one, our mutual friends at Datavisor have told me that they now are beginning to use a lot more deep learning in their fraud detection service. So your general impression uh, as far as uh, how does financial services compare to other industries in terms of uh, the use of some of more of these modern machine learning and AI methods? Yes. So these methods are definitely useful, but they're not useful as general algorithms as you might imagine in autonomous driving or recognizing images, but they're useful in uh, what I would call um, the representation learning type uh, scenario, where if you look at a lot of the challenges in the financial domain, we're talking about looking for patterns and being able to understand trends for millions of customers, not the typical billions of instances that you would see in your traditional deep learning approach. So the actual samples, if you look at many of the examples of lending, for example, there is the um, what we call A card and B card, right? Like the, the application and then the transaction fraud uh, kind of uh, scenarios. So for the application side, we actually don't have that much data. So we're talking about uh, low-frequency data where you know, people don't apply for credit card all that often, where you know, the data set may not be large enough to directly apply deep learning approaches. Whereas you know, for Datavisor and many other companies that may be looking at, uh, for example, the transaction fraud scenario, there would be billions of transactions uh, where you can apply good deep learning methodologies on. So for the application type scenario, like the low frequency scenario, where there is low frequency data coming in, deep learning is still really useful for looking at many of the language related, the application material support material related type of features being learned. So in many of those scenarios, deep learning provides a supporting role rather than the dominant role for the learning models that my group, my teams commonly use. So yes, it is useful, but we need to know exactly where we can apply it and where we cannot apply it to avoid having overfitting or having not enough data to train the model properly. Yeah, one of the things that uh, I think around the time this podcast releases, maybe this blog post will be out, but Ant Finance 
and their use of this new distributed framework from Rice Lab called Ray, where I think they start hinting at possible applications of reinforcement learning to personalization. But uh, I don't have any more details to say at that at this point. But I've seen them give presentations, so it's super interesting. So this yeah. is a, this is a space where. Uh, Listeners, uh, if you're interested in, there's lots of interesting problems to work on. So um, I wanted to uh, switch gears here and talk about China a little bit, because uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is we have our upcoming AI conference in Beijing, and I encourage you listeners to check out the website. I will link to it on this episode notes. And uh, one thing to note is that uh, we do have a mixture of English and Mandarin language sessions and keynotes. Actually, most of the keynotes will be in English. So if you want to find an excuse to learn about China and the vibrant AI scene in China, that uh, this is a good uh, event to come to. So. Speaking of China, obviously, uh, fintech is huge in China as well. So are there any kind of uh, special things about the Chinese fintech scene and its use of data science and machine learning that you want to point out? Yes. So I spent two years in China working in Beijing for a company called Irundai. And it's a peer-to-peer lending company. And while I was there, I talked to a lot of uh, professionals in the machine learning space in the fintech area. And it's a very vibrant uh, community there. And the industry, the financial industry in China is still hiring a lot of uh, very talented data scientists. And uh, I'd encourage uh, data scientists here to take a look. The attraction there mainly comes from the large customer base that is using financial technologies at a pretty advanced level. So a few areas where you might want to take a look at for the financial space in China includes like the mobile payment, wealth management, lending, and insurance, basically the major areas for the financial industry. So each of these areas you think are open and beginning to use data science and machine learning? <laughs> For these uh, areas, I think uh, China may be a forerunner in using internet technologies, especially mobile internet technologies for fintech. And I think the wave started way back when in like you know, 2012, 2013 timeframe. But um, if you look at uh, the mobile payment, like the Alipay and WeChat Pay, those have like hundreds of millions of uh, active users. So the latest data from Alipay is like 608 million users. And these these are not like all users, but monthly active users we're talking about. So this is like two times the US population using actively using Alipay on a monthly basis, uh, which is crazy amount if you consider all the data that can generate and all the things that you can see people buying to be able to understand how to serve the users better. And if you look at WeChat, they're boasting 1.01 billion users, monthly active users already this year. So um, those are huge players. And with that uh, amount of traffic, what they are able to do is to actually generate a lot of interest for the lower frequency services like 
wealth management and lending, as well as insurance. So happy to go into the other areas as well. So one of the things actually that I think that people outside China and the Westerners and here, feel free to disagree with me if you think otherwise. I think one of the misperceptions around China is the topic of data privacy, because while sure there's a different level of acceptance as far as use of data on the government side, but I think for private companies, Chinese consumers are quite also conscious about how these private companies use their data. They protest when private companies just share their data with other companies, correct? There is a certain bit of that, but in terms of data privacy, I think there are two components. One is the commercial side of data privacy, and one is the dark web side of data privacy, right? So one is the part that enterprises can control. And for that part, actually, I see large enterprises being quite protective of their own data because they're actually pretty good competitive advantage when the data stays within their own ecosystem. But at the same time, you know, there is also this dark web where companies kept getting hacked. And there has been some analysis that like 80% of the top 100 websites has already been hacked. And the challenge is in China, there isn't a strong regulation for releasing those information. So when websites get hacked, they don't get reported in the news. So people's data may get lost. The individual may not know about it. So that's definitely a, a large problem that for U.S. companies, they have the obligation to release the information about any hacks that is more prominently highlighted and company may be more careful about than in China. So you will be teaching a two-day training course that you taught an earlier version of at our AI conference in Beijing last year, which is basically uh, data science and financial services. So a quick question is, uh, what makes this particular course specifically tuned for financial services? That's one question. And the second question is, uh, would you teach this course differently if you were teaching it in the U.S.? Yeah, the first question. So what would this, uh, how would this be relevant? Well, I think this would be relevant mainly to bridge the connection between the financial domain and the science domain. So what I found when I was working at the Irindai, the peer-to-peer lending company in China, is that there are a lot of very talented data scientists, but they took a lot of time to ramp up in the financial field because there were some basic concepts that they didn't have top of mind when looking at the uh, financial type of data. And then there are also management professionals who are struggling to manage data scientists because they didn't know the data science language. So this particular tutorial at the O'Reilly AI conference in Beijing is targeted towards people who are on either side uh, and helping them gain a common language so that managers can manage data science teams better and data scientists can have a fast ramp up to all the concerns in the financial field so the data science solutions they offer can be more 
uh, holistically taking care of all financial product concerns. Would this course be any different if you were to teach it in the U.S.? Are there any aspects of this course tuned for the Chinese market? Yes, there are some that's tuned for the Chinese market, mainly for the kind of features that's available. So if you look at the distinctions between um, how the U.S. credit score system works and how the uh, Chinese credit scoring system works, for the um, U.S. system, it's a much more mature system where we have a lot of existing financial information, especially credit-related information about the consumer. So there is a lot of good, deep data from the uh, various credit agencies that can be used for assessing credit for lending. Then for the Chinese market, if you look at the data from uh, 2015, uh, really about 80% of the population still don't have enough credit information to be able to have credit scores properly assessed for them. So a lot of the data that the Chinese financial system uses to assess qualification for financial customers rely on data sets or data fields that uh, cannot be used in China. So for example, in terms of what we're using there, uh, we're using the uh, social network and what people have purchased before. And for those kind of data, we simply cannot use in the U.S. So for the particular course, uh, that the way that we targeted for the Chinese audience is that we have a lot of feature extraction and uh, machine learning model adaptation uh, that's targeted towards those alternative data sources, where for the U.S. market, more standard approaches and more sanitized data sets would be used for a U.S. audience. At a high level, uh, would those alternative data sources that you use in China, would those be available in the U.S.? And, uh, and would they be legal to use in the U.S.? So at a high level, many of those would not be available in U.S., mainly because there is already better data sources that can supersede uh, those data fields. So for example, uh, in terms of social network data in China, we commonly use people's detailed calling records. And when we were using those, they were actually voluntarily provided by the people who are applying for loans. Because with those information, we can make assessments about whether to lend someone a year worth of salary within about three minutes. In U.S., we actually have much better data about uh, people's credit history from the credit agency for the majority of the population. And that's actually more predictive of whether someone is going to pay back their loan than their social network. So we have better data in U.S., uh, to make those assessments. And at the same time, in U.S., people may be more sensitive about their social network data uh, to be used for lending. So people wouldn't be voluntarily providing those kind of information anyway. So you've, you've now, in your past two positions, the Irindai and your current position, you are leading data science teams in, uh, in uh, financial services. So is there anything different in the way you did it 
an errand die as opposed to acorn, the way you organize your team, number one? And number two, uh, is there a difference in how you approach leading and organizing a data science team in China and in the U.S.? I think that's a really good question. So there are certainly cultural differences between uh, China and U.S. So in China, the uh, way companies are managed are often very top-down. And in U.S., the teams are usually flatter. So there's a lot of initiatives that individuals and U.S. team members uh, have to be able to suggest different ways where the team can go. And that's actually really good because anytime when you have a strong top-down direction, there may be opportunities missed because the management level simply don't see some of the challenges that the practitioners would see. That's interesting because, you know, having spent a lot of time in China and interacting with people there, you can tell when you enter a meeting who's the senior person on the Chinese side. <laughs> B- yes. B- based on how people are talking in the meeting, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, with uh, that, though. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So with that, though, um, in China, there is a really strong enthusiasm for the financial field and for the data science field. So you find people voluntarily work six days a week um, and working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. And it's actually just now becoming a pretty hot topic in China yeah, in yeah, whether yeah, yeah. this I was is gonna, sustainable or not. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to let you finish, but the, this whole 996 thing is uh, controversial. So for our listeners out there, uh, that means the uh, kind of the work schedule in the Chinese startup world is 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. Although I actually found that, believe it or not, that's kind of an underestimate for some of the really cutting edge and uh, known startups that the people out here might have heard of. I'm not going to name names, but uh, I mean, <laughs> you have people routinely in the in these companies have meetings at 10 p.m., 11 p.m. And uh, I yes. remember I remember uh, calling a friend and I said, I apologize, uh, it's 11 p.m. there. I know uh, we scheduled this meeting because I'm in California. I said, no worries, I'm just coming out of a meeting and I have another meeting after this. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway so uh there's a lot of enthusiasm uh, but there's a lot of enthusiasm for data science here too right yes yes although um for data science traditionally well traditionally it's only been a decade or so but (laughs) those companies who can afford to uh, hire a data science team are often companies with some scale in u.s other than, of course, the uh, data science startups who are starting from scratch. But many of the more experienced data scientists in U.S. that I've seen may have fallen more comfortable uh, into uh, a more corporate environment. Uh, So many of the more senior data scientists uh, that I've found that often the transition to smaller companies are, uh, one is the timing for projects, right? So in larger companies, when data science has been a research domain, projects are often on the scale of three to six months long. And uh, in terms of result, those results then get incorporated into products after initial results 
uh, promising results have been achieved. But in startups, often we're working with um, product cycles that are uh, one month to six weeks in length. And there are often milestones for sprints, two-week sprints uh, for data science, which means that we're solving multiple problems at the same time. On one side, we're solving data quality issues and modeling issues. On the the other side, we're working closely together with product teams to find the product market fit for the new product and services we're pushing out. So product cycles are short. Often we need the minimal viable product, the first iteration, and then to refine the algorithms over time. So many times data scientists who came from a traditional large company background needs a little bit of time to ramp up uh, in a startup environment where they would be working much more closely with the product teams. And there are people who adopt to it beautifully because they value the closeness to the customer the data science projects become in this new environment. And then there are others who would prefer to be more in a corporate environment. So I would advise data scientists looking for roles to be aware of the kind of environment they would like to be in, uh, whether in a fast-paced environment or in an environment where each step is more deliberate, where you prefer to take three to six months to complete a project. So am I uh, hearing you say, though, that uh, in China, you are more likely to find people who are open to uh, working in a fast-paced environment? Yes. I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this has been a great conversation, and I will link to a few things in the show notes here, including Jicket's uh, upcoming training at AI Beijing. And uh, like I said, we do have English sessions at the conference, a mix of English and Mandarin. Most of the keynotes will be in English. So I invite you all to come to our second AI conference in Beijing. And thank you, Jika, for uh, being on our podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here, Ben. You can follow Jika Chong on Twitter at Jika Chong. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode. <music>